This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is uh, Michael McFall, for those of you who weren't here in the morning. I'm the acting director of FSI, and it's a real pleasure to have you all here. We thought we were going to have attrition, and we were worried about that, and I don't see hardly any free seats. And I think that's a testament to the fantastic show that we had today. Uh, I'm extremely proud to be the acting director of FSI and director of CDDRL. Uh, and I am constantly inspired when I get the chance to just listen for a whole day to my colleagues. Um, it was really quite an inspirational day. I hope you came away knowing that there's no such thing as national security. There are only international problems and international security issues that affect us all. As you remember, when Bill Perry started us off, he had his list of four things that he worries about. And whenever Bill Perry speaks about things that he worries about, I write them down. <laughs> this is a man who thought a lot about keeping us safe, both here in the United States and in the world. And as I went through the day, I checked off the first three. And I felt pretty good about it. These are real issues, nuclear uh, uh, proliferation, uh, climate change. But we had substantive conversations. And we, what really impressed me was that the most interesting people, no offense to those who traveled from afar, uh, were oftentimes my Stanford colleagues speaking about these things. And I, said, I thought to myself, well, three of the four is not bad. But the fourth one on his list, as you might recall, was how to deal with Islamic fundamentalism. And as I thought about it, I was delighted to know that we have just hired Martha Crenshaw, who I know is here somewhere, a uh, new fellow at CSA. I can't see you, Martha, because of the lights. Uh, works on, uh, th there she is. I'm glad you're here. Fantastic. Uh, we're trying to change that uh, with hires like we just made with Martha at CSAC and dealing with terrorism, but when I got to thinking about it, it just turns out that as Americans, and it's not just a Stanford problem, I would say it is an American problem, we have not thought systematically about what it means when we use the phrase Islamic fundamentalism. We tend to categorize it and treat it holistically, especially those that like to use the, the very unfortunate phrase, in my uh, opinion, Islamofascism. And we just kind of treat it all as the Muslims. And without naming names, I heard three people today say something to the effect, we have to learn how to talk better to the Muslims. And that's just not good enough. That's just not good enough. If we are going to understand this threat, we have to disaggregate that big thing called the Muslim world. We have to know the difference between an Islamic fundamentalist, uh, Islamist, uh, and liberal uh, Muslims. And when I thought about this problem last year, I actually thought about it at this very conference and thinking, God, it is just atrocious how badly we as a university and we as a country are doing to address these issues. We're just not up to the task right now. And as a, uh, a student of the Cold War, I think back to the thousands, tens of thousands of people, that when we had a debate about communism, another ism that we used to think a lot about, we had a lot of expertise. 
We had a lot of people that knew the nuances between different kinds of communism. We had intricate debates about the, inter, the, the divides within individual countries, let alone between a whole group of communist countries. And I just think it's a tragedy, a national security tragedy, that we still are not taking this issue on just understanding what it is, the Islamic world, the Muslim world, and Islamic fundamentalism. So when I thought about who we could get to help us fill this void, I remember my visit to Tehran, Iran, three years ago. Uh, I'm not, we're not, we didn't invite anybody from the Islamic Republic, don't get worried. Um, and I was sitting there in the lobby uh, chatting with my fellow conference folks, and we were complaining about the food and the lack of alcohol, by the way, at the restaurant, talking about where the best places to buy carpets were, and all the kind of trivial chit-chat that conference-goers tend to do to make, conference, make, make conversation. And in walked this guy, Gilles Capel, to you, Professor Capel, from Sciences Po. And he'd just come back from Combe. And he had just had this fascinating meeting with several of the religious leaders in Qom. And immediately he sat down and started to talk about it. And uh, other people wanted to talk about the carpets and the lack of beer. But I've, I heard this guy and I said, okay, this is a guy I'm going to spend the next several days with. Because he knew what he was talking about. And he didn't just sit in Tehran and wait for the bus to pick us up to go to the conference center and then on to Isfahan. He went on his own to Qom, which is the religious center of the Islamic Republic of Iran. I then went back home, I Googled him. Uh, turns out he's written several books in many, many languages. I think that for me, the, the most important book I've read on Islamic fundamentalism is his book, Jihad, The Trail of Political Islam. And I wanna note the publication date. It was the year 2000. We've had a proliferation of so-called expert books on jihad uh, that came after 2001. But this book, if you're going to read one book, it still stands the test of time, in my opinion. Read that one. And he's written several other books. But the thing that really is amazing to me is exactly the kind of things that I think we as scholars need to be doing uh, when trying to figure out this part of the world. We have to be in that part of the world talking to these people. Jill, just in conversation, September was in Lebanon. He got in a car and he drove for about an hour through the, the alleyways so that he could go see the deputy head of Hezbollah. Now, make no mistake, Gilles Capel is no friend of Hezbollah. He was on a commission by uh, President Chirac to talk about uh, Islamic dress wear, well, actually not just Islamic, all religious wear in France. Uh, and they did not like what he had to say about headscarves in the public education system. But he nonetheless was there because he wanted to know what is going on inside Hezbollah. He then went to Gaza, he then went to the West Bank, and he was talking to leaders of Hamas. And again, from our panel today, you don't have to be friends to try to understand these kinds of people. And there he was. A uh, few months earlier, I have yet to be able to get back to Iran. Gilles was there in the spring. We happened to meet uh, a gentleman at our conference the last time we were there, Mohammadi was his name, uh, and at the time he was not radical enough for President Khatami, and was kind of in the shadow, shadow government. Uh, I'll tell you honestly, he didn't spend a lot of time talking to me, Jill. Uh, didn't really like the fact that I was there. 
did spoke to Gilles, probably because you both spoke Arabic, uh, would be my guess, uh, but also because Gilles wanted to know who this man was and where he learned his Arabic and why is he doing this. Well, now Mr. Mohammadi is in the government, uh, as you can well imagine, under Mr. Ahmadinejad, and Gilles went to visit him. Again, because we need to know what these folks are thinking. And, and the last thing I want to say about Gilles, in addition to his scholarship, is he understands that uh, we just don't, we don't have enough Gilles Capels in the world. We most certainly don't have enough Americans who do this kind of work, in my opinion. And Gilles understands that, so he has invested tremendously into some really creative things that they do in Paris, and dare I say, we have something to learn. We like to talk about ourselves as being on the cutting edge, Silicon Valley, we're the 21st century. Well, when it comes to studying Islamic fundamentalism, Paris is the 21st century. Gilles has 30 PhD students working on the Middle East. Six of them have just finished theses on Saudi Arabia and have done field work in Saudi Arabia. There's nowhere at any American university that that is happening. And most innovatively, he's started a new program in his hometown of Monton. I, I apologize for the uh, pronunciation. Um, it's this fascinating place where on the Riviera, students from the Muslim world, from France, from all over the world, 28 nationalities, go to do courses in French, English, and Arabic. And then, as a finishing school to that, they go up to Paris for the next two years to finish their MA at Sciences Po itself. That's exactly the kind of thing we should be doing. I see it as a real challenge to us all to learn from our French colleagues. And tonight, I promise you, you will learn from one of our French colleagues. Jill, thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much, Mike. You made me blush tremendously while you were speaking, and uh, you've raised so many expectations that I don't know how I can come up to them. Um, it's going to be a very difficult task, so thank you very much for this very kind introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here in uh, Stanford. It uh, reminds me of the French Riviera to some extent, so it's the best compliment I can pay to you. And uh, except that some of the palm trees are different, but this is another issue. Uh, and uh, I, I, I was asked um, this, uh, this evening to, to address this um, issue of um, what we call, or some people call, Islamic fundamentalism in a rather provocative way. Uh, is it on the rise or the decline? Because it looks so self-evident that it's on the rise everywhere. Why should this uh, frog come and tell us it's on the decline? and uh, shows that, you know, those people in, uh, over, overseas don't think right. And um, we, uh, if it's not on, uh, in Iraq, it's in Afghanistan. If it's not in Afghanistan, it's Pakistan and in many other places. And uh, there is hardly a day when you do not see a, a beheading or a suicide bombing or what have you on television. And it looks like violence is uh, taking place everywhere in the Muslim world and that we're at loss um, trying to get rid of it. Um, now, when we try to, uh, to think about this, this phenomenon at large, 
And if we go back to, um, to uh, the year 2000 and 2001, to 9-11-2001, at the time, um, I had already put myself in, in a soup, if I may say so, uh, because this book, Jihad, which uh, Mike very kindly mentioned earlier on, um, was subtitled in its original French version, which uh, appeared in 2000, before 9-11, uh, jihad, expansion and decline of Islamism. And then as of uh, September 12th, a number of people um, asked me to uh, get, get out of my job, uh, uh, go on leave, uh, disappear under the, under the water or under the, the ground or whatever. Uh, how come uh, I could write something so stupid? And um, how come I dared even exist? Um, and, um, well, it was um, a harsh time, but, you know, um, someone who, who can survive uh, doing Middle Eastern things for a quarter of a century has to be a cold-blooded, thin-skinned animal, otherwise he disappears. Uh, and um, I was actually um, taken out of this uh, quandary by no other than uh, Dr. Ayman Azawahiri, uh, bin Laden's um, right arm man, uh, as some say, uh, who had written a little book which was out uh, by the end of 2000, um, right before, um, when, well, it, it, he probably wrote it by the end of 2000 and he, uh, it was circulated on the web uh, in the fall of 2001. And the booklet was entitled uh, Nights, with a K, Knights Under the Prophet's Banner. Uh, in this leaflet, Zawahiri uh, made it clear that in his view, um, Islamist radical movements had failed entirely in the 1990s in uh, their um, attempt to mobilize Muslim societies in jihad in order to topple the powers that be and um, set up in their, in their stead uh, Islamic regimes or Islamic states, if you want. And because of their failure in, uh, in Egypt, in Algeria, in Bosnia, in Kashmir, in Chechnya, and so on and so forth, because of their failure to, to develop guerrilla jihads, if you wish, then they had to look for an alternative solution in order to mobilize the masses. And that, out of that came the idea of the Big Bang of September 11. Uh, they thought that um, as they demonstrated their capacity to hit uh, what they call the far enemy, as opposed to the near enemy, the, the local uh, powers that be, uh, as a result, uh, people in the Muslim world would not fear anymore. And they could revolt against their rulers, against their bad rulers, their um, apostate rulers, as they say. And that as a consequence of 9-11, then the whole Muslim world and finally the whole world would uh, become uh, ruled by Sharia and uh, would, uh, would be under uh, Islamist uh, aegis. Now, 
to what extent have they managed to, um, to perform uh, what they had in mind? And uh, what were the consequences of 9-11? Have the, the likes of Bin Laden and Zawahiri finally managed to, to win? Or uh, on the contrary, are they now in, uh, in dire straits and uh, in difficulty? Uh, what I would like to, um, to share with you uh, are a few thoughts which uh, I developed recently and uh, which are uh, going to be translated into uh, a book in a book form which uh, should be out in uh, the local dialect we still use in France, which is French, um, in, uh, in, the, in the spring, and it should uh, be translated into real language, English, a little later on next year, hopefully in time for the, the presidential election. Uh, the, um, uh, and I'd, I'd like to share, you some, share with you some thoughts about uh, the way this Al-Qaeda ideology and worldview developed uh, over the last uh, six years since 9-11 uh, had happened. And whether or not the, if I may say so, the, the promise of 9-11 developed uh, according to the views of the perpetrators of this, uh, of this horrendous uh, operation or crime, if you'd rather. Um, have they succeeded in what they, they wanted to do? Or on the contrary, have they failed? And if so, what is the new situation in the Middle East, which has come out of 9-11 and of the, the reaction to 9-11. If, if we go back to 9-11 to and to the, to the reactions to, to it, I think we could, one useful way to look at it would be to consider that right after 9-11, we had a sort of clash of, of narratives of, we had two ground narratives, if you wish. On the one hand, we had the ground narrative of jihad and martyrdom, which was uh, articulated by uh, Ben Laden, Zawahiri, that uh, would be uh, posted on the internet, uh, that you would um, also see on uh, satellite television, on Al Jazeera and the like. And uh, that narrative would be made out of uh, two distinct um, elements. On the one hand, you had the declarations of Zawahiri, proclamations, declarations, or what have you, of uh, Zawahiri, Bin Laden, and others, who would uh, hammer day in, day out, Weltanschauungen, uh, or visions of the world, uh, where they would explain that the rotten regimes of the West and the rotten apostate regimes of the Middle East were about to fall. And in order to prove that, they would rely on um, some sort of, um, if I may say so, a copycat um, phenomena uh, that would relate to 9-11, bombings in uh, Africa, in Europe, in, in the Middle East, suicide operations, and so on and so forth. And uh, in a way, this great narrative was not built, this grand narrative was not built on 
actual social mobilization or actual social change that those people would have claimed they engineered in their own societies, but on um, suicide bombings or radical actions, uh, minority group actions on the one hand, that were publicized, that were hyped on TV and on the internet. And uh, with that, they tended to uh, develop a sort of substitute to actual change and actual mobilization within, within societies. And uh, so even though Zawahiri, Bin Laden, and the others, and the others uh, were keen on presenting uh, day in, day out, this sort of, of jihadi and martyrdom worldview, which was uh, leading humanity to uh, the apotheosis of the triumph of Islam, if you wish. Nevertheless, on the field, very little was happening. A lot was happening in terms of violence, for instance, but very little was happening in terms of what they were after, i.e. the mobilization of Muslim societies, right? So that was ground narrative number one, the ground narrative of martyrdom, of jihad and martyrdom. But then you had another ground narrative, the one which I may, we may call, if you wish, the ground narrative of the war on terror, which was engineered by this present American administration and that um, hammered there again, uh, day in, day out, that uh, the roots of terrorism um, could be eradicated, that not only um, was uh, America to um, uh, hunt and destroy uh, Al-Qaeda and, uh, and uh, likewise groups, but that one should go a step further and consider that the, the real cause for the uh, flourishing of uh, radical movements or jihadist movements in the Middle East was the resilience of uh, autocratic, non-democratic regimes and that the uh, tumbling of those regimes would uh, bring about democracy and that with the uh, mushrooming of democracy in the Middle East, then there would be, because there would, there would be pluralism, then there would be no, uh, no possibility or no reason for Islamist movements to, to be in existence anymore. And, well, this is a rationale that you Americans know much better than I do. And, uh, and that, as you, everybody knows, led to the uh, invasion of Iraq in uh, the spring of 2003. At first, the, um, the invasion of Iraq looked like it sort of fulfilled uh, the neoconservative uh, worldview or the neoconservative dream. Uh, the Saddam Hussein regime fell easily, and um, actually it was a weak conventional army which was defeated by a strong conventional army, something which was easier to do than to defeat this network of radical movements uh, which was, um, to which uh, conventional uh, armies were um, unable to, uh, uh, to react or deal with. But then, 
the invasion of Iraq opened uh, a new uh, avenue or a boulevard, as we say in French, to uh, radical Islamist mobilization. And whereas uh, Al-Qaeda people had not succeeded in mobilizing uh, significant Muslim constituencies in Egypt, in Algeria, in uh, Bosnia, where have you, in the 1990s, it so seemed that uh, American occupation of Iraq, the American occupation of Iraq after 2003, actually provided Al-Qaeda for this golden opportunity that they had been looking for for so long, i.e. that they could mobilize a population against uh, uh, foreign invasion, crusaders invasion, and that they would be able to use or to manipulate um, Muslim political parlance, if you wish, and to control it in order to, to mobilize their constituencies. And originally, this was what uh, Zawahiri and bin Laden had in mind. I mean, they were convinced that uh, Iraq would be a sort of um, a new Vietnam for America or would be to America what Afghanistan had been for the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And if you followed uh, Zawahiri's proclamation on the, on the internet and on, on, on the web, on, on satellite television, this, was, this is what he was uh, saying time and again. Now, something very strange and very unexpected took place in, uh, in Iraq during the course of the war. Uh, something which caught unawares both uh, American strategists and um, Al-Qaeda tacticians. While those two were fighting each other, while uh, the uh, Al-Qaeda people were uh, planting booby-trapped cars and suicide bombers and to, uh, to kill American soldiers, and when American and Allied soldiers were chasing uh, these uh, Sunni Islamist radicals, that made ground for the rise of those people that uh, Michael uh, mentioned earlier on, that is to say um, an, uh, an Iranian uh, revolutionary regime that had become to some extent dormant under President Khatami when uh, Iran was um, trying not to antagonize the West completely because at the time they were uh, badly in need uh, of uh, access to industrial infrastructures in order to keep at least their oil production uh, going. Uh, and um, they had, if I may say so, uh, put water on their wine, even though they supposedly do not drink, but this is not true in Iran. And Michael, this is the only thing I would correct if you didn't tell your friends that uh, we had some connections where uh, what was poured to us as tea looked like tea but did not smell like tea. And, uh, and one of the best, uh, um, how to say, wine tasting things, competitions, which I did recently was in Iran last fall uh, when uh, 
you have your, those guys who sort of, they make their own wine and then you, you, you're blindfolded and you taste the grapes and it's sort of, um, these, are, these are the real, um, this is the real life of the Islamic Republic today. And uh, <coughs> so at the time, uh, before the invasion of Iraq or the occupation of Iraq, um, we had some sort of a dormant, if you wish, uh, Islamic Republic. And um, with an evolution within the system where a number of the establishment figures of the Islamic Republic, like Hatami, were, extended, were extending a hand to the West, to Europe definitely, and uh, they were, uh, Hatami was touring Europe and uh, sort of um, singing the uh, anthem of the dialogue of civilizations. Uh, he also tried to extend a hand to the United States, but this was, this, his offer was turned down because um, it was believed in this country that the regime should fall entirely and that you should not pass a compromise with some elements of the regime, that you know you, you could not bet on the fact that the, the regime would, uh, would become more and more reformist to the point that you would cease to be an Islamic Republic. I mean, it was very clear that there was another uh, more confrontational line in this country and um, regime change was, uh, was perceived as, as feasible, which I think in retrospect was a mistake. And so um, due, to the, due to the invasion of Iraq, and um, the fact that um, the U.S. Uh, found itself trapped to a large extent in Iraq, or the American military found itself trapped in Iraq, that gave a golden opportunity, not so much to the Sunni Islamic fundamentalists, but to the Shia Islamic fundamentalists, and first and foremost to the, uh, to the Iranians. Uh, who uh, elected in uh, June 2005 uh, a new president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, uh, who had a much more radical stance than, um, than Khatami and who considered that he could um, raise the stakes uh, in the confrontation with the U.S. and uh, that he had, the Iranians had enough clout thanks to their access to the Shia militias in Iraq, so that they could engage in uh, nuclear blackmail with the rest of the world and with the United States. And that if they did not get what they wanted, they could always threaten the US with uh, the boosting or the activating of the Shia militias in Iraq where American forces would be at loss confronting two enemies at one time and being between, if I may say so, Iraq and a hard place. <laughs> and um, so um, that led to the, um, to the fact that uh, on the one hand, I guess there was some sort of probably a uh, miscalculation on the part of, uh, of the U.S. leadership vis-a-vis -vis Iran. I mean, that traces back to the, uh, to the Khatami period. I mean, uh, 
And uh, as you know, this is uh, debated nowadays in the US and um, someone you, I'm sure you heard about, uh, uh, Mr. Flint Leverett, who was um, uh, in charge of dealing with Iran, with uh, Syria, and with Libya at uh, NSC, if I'm not mistaken, um, felt rather bitter that those policies were not implemented and uh, believed that it, it was a mistake to bet entirely on regime change in Iran and it would have been better to, to sort of uh, strike a deal with the more reformist elements of the Iranian regime which would have precluded the, the event of the radicals. But this is another story. And on the other hand, one of the, unex the unexpected consequences of the, um, of the war in, um, in Iraq was the weakening of the grand narrative of the Sunni radical fundamentalists, of uh, the Zawahiris and, uh, and the Ben Ladens, who became more and more unaudible in Muslim constituencies uh, all the more so as Ahmadinejad and the Iranians uh, started to play the champions and the heroes of the Muslim Ummah uh, in its revolt against, uh, against the West, against uh, imperialism and Zionism, or against uh, crusaders and, uh, and the Jews, as they say. And uh, to that effect, the... Uh, the very uh, spot that uh, Zawahiri and, uh, and Ben Laden had carved from, them, had carved from themselves uh, became smaller and smaller. And uh, I've been uh, monitoring quite closely um, the last two years of the declarations that Zawahiri made over the internet and, and on satellite television from the the uh, fourth or the sixth anniversary of 9-11. And it's, uh, it's a very bizarre um, discourse, if you wish. Uh, he's trying to paint um, the present fate of the world as a sort of triumphal march um, outside of impiety towards the completion of um, Sunni Islamist fundamentalism as he sees it. But then so many things happen in the Middle East that do not fit. And uh, most of his efforts tend to uh, recarve, reshape, if you wish, uh, events in the Middle East according to his worldview. But the discrepancy between his, world, his uh, worldview and reality is, um, is getting bigger and bigger in time. Take, for instance, the, uh, what is now known as the 33-day war of uh, last summer, uh, summer 2006, between uh, Israel and Hezbollah. And um, if, you, if you listened to Zawahiri's uh, tapes or if you watched his cassettes at the time, he would not even mention once Hezbollah. Uh, because Hassan Nasrallah to him is a Shia, uh, which is even worse than, uh, than a Christian or a Jew. 
And uh, he would explain to uh, the people who listened to him that um, this was what, what had happened last year uh, during the war between uh, Hezbollah and Israel, or Israel and Hezbollah, the way you prefer to name it, uh, was not the right, the right way to fight. The right way to fight was to strike at the United States. And um, that was the beginning of the end for the West. Whereas uh, the war um, in, in Lebanon, between Lebanon and, and, uh, and Israel, was something with, which was rife with contradictions. And he would, he would state in, uh, in anger what he uh, saw were the contradictions of Shia militants in, 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 in the wider Middle East. How come, he asked, uh, was uh, a confrontation against the Israelis and the Americans okay, was it halal, or if I may say so, kosher, in, uh, in Lebanon, whereas in Iraq, on the contrary, the Shia militias were allied to the Americans against the Sunni uh, groups and uh, uh, the Al-Qaeda militias. And uh, he then would state that if Imam Hussein, the sort of the, the founder of the Shia sect, were alive today, he would be fighting with the Al-Qaeda uh, people, uh, guerrillas, against uh, the American occupation. So, to a large extent, what, uh, what we now have is, um, is a sort of reshuffling of, of the cards. In, on the radical scene in the Middle East. The, um, the Sunni radical movements uh, that, to a large extent, Al-Qaeda uh, sort of epitomized, and that had been boosted nolens volens by uh, Sunni uh, states in the Middle East that wanted to accommodate those people so that they would not be a domestic threat. Those movements have now lost to a large extent their capacity to mobilize to those um, unexpected new players, uh, the Shia, uh, militants and the Shia movements, uh, which are now uh, playing a role which to some extent looks like a remake of what Ayatollah Khomeini had tried to do in the late 1980s but have had uh, not managed to achieve. That is to say, those movements are trying to uh, overcome their uh, Shia limitations. You know that Shias are approximately 15% of the, um, of the global um, Muslim population of 1.3 billion approximately on the, um, in the planet. And so for Shias, in order to mobilize the Ummah, the Muslims at large, 
one needs not to be perceived as Shias too much, right? They have to be perceived as Muslims in general, not Shias. And Khomeini, uh, when he wanted to uh, spread the Islamic revolution uh, beyond the borders of Iran, downplayed the Shia dimension of, uh, of Iran and uh, overplayed its, tried to overplay its uh, Islamic dimension, over-encompassing Islamic dimension. And uh, the Rushdie affair, for instance, was a case in point. The, the fatwa against Salman Rushdie, against the author of the Satanic Verses, was precisely, was designed uh, to sort of mobilize all and sundry in the Muslim world that was supposed to have been offended by the way the Prophet Muhammad was depicted in the, in the novel. But he did not manage to do so. And uh, even though there was a level, a significant level of anger in uh, Muslim countries, in Sunni Muslim countries against this, uh, uh, this book, nevertheless, uh, Sunni countries would be more fearful of uh, Iran, Khomeini's Iran hijacking the mobilization of the Muslim world, then they would be fearful of, uh, of the West attacking them uh, through um, the, um, the novel. And to a large extent, we, we are now seeing more of the same, i.e. Uh, Ahmadinejad and uh, his people, and uh, Ahmadinejad and Hezbollah, um, in Lebanon are seeing themselves or trying to portray themselves as the heroes and champions not only of the Muslim world uh, in its opposition to, um, to the West or to imperialism, to what have you, uh, but they're also trying to uh, join forces with uh, the likes of uh, President Chavez of Venezuela or President Morales uh, in order to build a sort of wide coalition of the disinherited, uh, the mustadhafin in Arabic or in uh, Farsi, more or less like Khomeini uh, tried to do. Uh, in the late, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and they are faced with the same difficulties. Uh, as soon as they, uh, as they want to mobilize worldwide, uh, then there is a tremendous amount of, of fear and anxiety uh, in Sunni countries over uh, what they, they believe is not only uh, an attempt uh, by uh, Shias to, to steal the, the Muslim show in general, but more precisely when we're talking about the Gulf area, of, uh, the, the, there is this major fear of the Gulf Cooperation Council country, the GCC countries, that Iran, as a local Iranian superpower, not particularly a Shia or non-Shia state, but as a superpower, as a local superpower, would, uh, is struggling for hegemony over the Gulf, over not only the Gulf waters, but over the biggest oil and hydrocarbon producing area in the world. And um, this fear is, 
is nowadays precluding the uh, Islamist mobilization in general. And let me um, give you a small, uh, a small example with which I will uh, be through because I feel that you're not only hungry, but you're going to be angry um, <laughs> against me. Uh, the, um, you know, we had those uh, Danish cartoons controversy last year, uh, which was, in a way, a sort of a, a remake of the Rushdie affairs of sorts, right? Muslims were offended, or they said they were offended, and then there was radical, there was mobilization, and so on and so forth. And I don't want to get into the details of that because this isn't the forthcoming book. So I would like you to buy it, not necessarily read it, but buy it. And uh, the uh, uh, even in French, if you don't read it, you can buy it in any language. And uh, the um, um, originally. This was a mobilization that was started, that was sparkled by radical Sunni imams in Denmark. People coming from uh, Lebanon and, and, uh, and Palestine mainly. Uh, it was then uh, boosted by Sunni Muslim states, particularly Egypt, that were at the time um, having elections where um, the US had compelled the Egyptian regime to have some sort of uh, window dressing pluralism, and therefore Muslim brothers were competing in the elections. And the Egyptian regime had to demonstrate that he was as Muslim or more Muslim than the Muslim brothers. So the regime, the Egyptian regime, took the lead in the campaign against the Danish cartoons, right? And then there was a snowball effect and, um, and the Iranians saw the possibility for them to, uh, to seize, the, to seal the show, to pull the carpets under the feet of the, of the Sunni regimes. And they, um, so there, was, there were those demonstrations in, 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 uh, in Tehran and then in Damascus. It also had to do with uh, uh, Syria um, trying to um, to demonstrate that it was offended and then it should not uh, be accused of Harari's assassination and a number of all things. And how, how did the, the, the cartoon uh, controversy end? It ended with a conference that was um, called um, in uh, Manama in Bahrain, which is, as you know, is, a, is, a, is an island state in the, in, in, the, in the Persian Gulf. It's, a, it's an Arab kingdom uh, with a, major, a population which is majority Shia and a Sunni monarchy, dynasty. And then a number of leading Sunni ulema decided to put an end to the campaign uh, and it ended. And why was it that they decided to put an end to the campaign? Because they were fearing that now this would be an Iranian and Shia issue and that they would control the campaign and that they would use them to use it to destabilize uh, Arab regimes that would be pinpointed as too lukewarm or not aggressive enough and traitors and so on and so forth. So, um, to, to wrap up, um, even though we, you know, um, you're, uh, all of you here are not specialists of the Muslim world, uh, because otherwise, you know, how could I make how could I make a living? And uh, but you're uh, you're people who, um, well, 
in the old days, uh, we would say, an honest homme qui lit les journaux, Albert Camus would say, honest Honest homme doesn't translate into honest man, but you know, you know, average people who read the daily newspapers. Now we don't even read the newspapers. We watch TV and we, uh, we, we browse the, the web, the World Wide Web. But the, um, and whatever you do, in order to be informed, I mean, you have, you, it looks like you're, you're overwhelmed by those images of uh, uncontrolled violence and sheer violence and beheadings and suicide bombings and so on and so forth, which, which is not invented, which is true. But if we want to, try to put some order into that, and if we want to, to analyze that, uh, what has happened since 9-11 is not necessarily the, uh, the victory of the, um, or the grand narrative of jihad and martyrdom. Neither is it probably the victory of the grand narrative on the war on terror, as the present administration knows. But what came out of, the, of this clash of the two grand narratives, if you wish, is um, this, uh, this fragmentation within the Muslim world that pitches nowadays Shia forces under the aegis of the Iranian Islamic Republic against uh, Sunni forces on the other side. And uh, I guess that um, the, uh, the near future of the, of the Middle East, and particularly of the Gulf region, uh, has, to, has to do with the way this confrontation will develop. It's, um, even though it may be seen from the outside as a sort of you know, divide and rule thing, after all, what did the Brits do and uh, the Brits did the, right, the wrong things, you know, this is what we think with the French thing. In Britain, in India, they pitched the Sikhs against the Hindus and the Hindus against the Muslims and vice versa. And so, divide ut imperes. But in the case of, uh, of Shia versus Sunnis, I mean, uh, you know, if the, if the Gulf is not secure, it's the, the whole economy of the planet which is at stake. And uh, with a weak dollar and uh, a barrel of, of oil which, uh, reaches, which has skyrocketed and reaches $100 approximately, uh, one can imagine uh, what a major confrontation in the Gulf would lead to. And this is something which has to be put in the debate of whether or not there would be a strike. Right? One last comment, and then I will shut up, but you should never trust the French because you know the, the promises are binding to them only for the people who receive them. And um, this good friend of ours, of Mike and myself, Ali Azhar Mohammedi, whom I, I went to visit in his capacity of the as the director of the Afri uh, North Africa and Middle East desk at the, at the Iranian Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, last spring, we discussed this strike issue. And he said, there's, there's going to be no American strike. And I said, how are you so sure? He said, because he told me, they know that if they strike, we're going to strike back. I said, what are you going to strike back at? I mean, America, impossible. Israel, don't even start dreaming about it. He said, no, we don't have to go that far. Just on the other side. Where? Saudi Arabia? Too big. Kuwait? No one cares. Uh, Bahrain? They're Shias. Don't touch them. Dubai? No. 
because all the all Iranian money is in Dubai. Leaves but one country, Qatar, and uh, which is near where you have Sandcom, where you have Al Jazeera, where you have. Uh, 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 Israeli commercial attaché, where you have um, um, a number of things. I mean, the Qatar Emirates has, uh, the Emirate of Qatar has sort of built a multi-purpose insurance policy for itself. But to no avail by Iranian standards, because they, fe they feel that, you know, even though they're attacked and they, they can always send something on Qatar, and uh, send a plane that will destroy the, the gas uh, factories where um, uh, liquid gas from under the sea pops out at 200 kilometers an hour and will explode and destroy the whole country. And uh, therefore, you know, the, the, the boosting of the, uh, the Sunni-Shia divide is also uh, a very, very dangerous game. So, this, I hope, is food for thought, if not thought for food. And uh, thank you so much for uh, being so patient and uh, listening to me stumbling my way from my poor English. And uh, I'll be at your uh, entire disposal. Would you wish to ask another question for aperitif? Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.